the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. I'm Steph. I am a DMV native, grown up in the area basically my whole life. I'm a Cuban-American, and I'm proud to be a part of an organization called FFDC. You know, I think my actual radicalization occurred pretty recently, and recently being like over the last five or six years. But, you know, I put a lot of thought into it when I was invited to come onto this podcast. Like, where did the radicalization really start? And I think it actually started to form a lot earlier than I gave it credit for. I grew up in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. And being a white Cuban, I was the minority in a lot of these neighborhoods. I've never known anything but love coming out of the communities that I grew up in. You know, my mom worked three jobs when I was little. We were on Section 8, but I didn't even know that until years and years later. You know, she made it so I never really felt the effects of poverty. We always had food. We always had shelter. But in retrospect, I would see her do things like put toilet paper rolls from fast food restaurants in her purse. And it never really clicked with me that like that was because that was an easy way for her to save money. I always remember thinking to myself, like, my mom works three jobs. Why is she stealing toilet paper? But it really didn't hit me until later on exactly how messed up that was all by itself. Fast forward a few years, like I had my son and like most parents, I proudly displayed his photo in whatever office I was working in at the time. But I was a paralegal in corporate America and most of my superiors and coworkers were were white. And the oh that I would get from them, so many of them when they would see his picture was kind of startling. It almost tell that like I would lose my value to them once they realized that I had a black son. I remember I was like I was working as a temp at a job one time and it was just a really bad fit to begin with but you know as a single parent especially in such an expensive area you try to make it work with your with your job no matter what and we were just really bumping heads and I got into it with my employer like I knew that was going to be my last day and he called my child a mutt I really lost my temper and that experience alone rattled me so much And that was me being a white presenting individual with a black child. Imagine, and you know, most people don't have to imagine, but you know, this just speaks so highly to like how black people are treated on the job. If you could speak to me that way, just based on my son, the experience that black people have in the workplace has to be exponentially more uncomfortable. You know, fast forward again, I think even then I was a little bit blind to like the violent realities of blackness in America and the effects on capitalism, on literally everything. And truly, I think that moment where I peaked, like probably a lot of people, was Trayvon Martin. 
I was still working in the law field. I remember being extremely invested in every aspect of that case just because to me at the time it was so egregious and it was so obvious that it was a hate crime, right? Because there was like no other reason for this kid to be targeted. And I remember sitting in the break room and listening to the attorneys at my law firm talk about all of the ways that they would play the defense attorney in this case and like how they would get him off in reference to George Zimmerman. Oh, this is an easy case to be like you can prove this and that and i went back into my office and closed the door and literally wept that story with trayvon just walking home you know you think about being a kid and like at least in my generation like kids that grew up in like 80s 90s we were outside all the time we were outside wandering around 24 7 you know going to the store and cutting across neighborhoods and hopping fences like it's what kids do and to think of this kid just being out there like getting a pack of skittles and doing what kids do and going home and having that happen to him and then sitting around and listening to attorneys who study the law talk about all of the easy defenses that they could put together for this kid's murderer. Just, it made me sick. And you know, there were many more innocent black lives taken long before Trayvon, right? And up until this day. But that was really like a cornerstone for me that really kind of sparked the like, this is a lot worse than I ever gave it credit for. It kind of just grew from there. You know, I. I wept for Trayvon. I I wept for Jordan Davis, who was shot by the white man at the gas station in Florida, who thought his music was too loud. And then there was Michael Brown and Laquan McDonald. And then there was Tamir Rice, you know? And I had a son old enough to be playing outside then. It could have been him. It could have been any of his friends. You know, it could have been an anybody. And then Freddie Gray who was closer to our area. And Freddie Gray was actually the first protest that I ever went to. It was at that point where I was just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And just sitting here and being sad about it and crying in my office is, is not gonna fix anything. Sitting here and being silently upset at these attorneys, they're talking about defense strategies for murderers is not, it's not accomplishing anything. So Freddie Gray was the first protest I ever went to. And you know, coincidentally, it was also my first riot. So I was literally baptized by fire. And it was, it was one of the first times that I can remember witnessing police brutality live and in person, not just on TV, not just hearing accounts of it on the news or hearing it from friends. Like it was my first time really witnessing egregious, violent police brutality right in front of my face was at those protests um, and them Brutalizing protesters for being angry at them for brutalizing people was just so ironic. I don't have to tell you that. You know, we, we've been living this for the last, I mean, at least eight months. And you know, from there, how the list goes on. Jamar Clark was shot in the head by a Minneapolis police while he was handcuffed. Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Charles Kinsey, Sandra Bland, Corin Gaines, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Karan Hilton. You know, it doesn't stop. From there, I got to reading. You know, you start to, you start to try to educate yourself. You know, you notice a pattern in behaviors. You grow up and you watch the news and you get social media and you start to really notice patterns. 
I don't know at what point it was when I really started reading about the police and the government, about how modern day policing directly grew from Blade Patrol. Like they didn't even bother to change the badge, you know? Like it was a completely lazy, not so cover up job of reforming the slave patrols. I'm just like, they didn't even bother to change the badge. And things like that stick out to you so much because it makes you realize how little they really care about you knowing their malicious intents when it comes to black, brown, and indigenous communities and people. They really don't care if people know that their systems, policies, actions, behaviors are racially motivated. You know, then I learned about the Electoral College and how that exists only because states wanted to make money off of Black bodies, but only name them as three-fifths of a human being to make sure that while they were making money off of them, they didn't have the same rights as white people. You know, and most recently, I did want to make sure that I touched on this, like watching my own son be manhandled and taken by police was probably the moment where I realized I wanted to burn everything down. You know, I knew it was there before, but seeing it happen to my son, who, you know, obviously for people with children, nieces, nephews, you want to protect your kids, especially, you know, young black kids. And my kid doesn't look like a kid. You know, he's, he's a teenager, but he's six foot three. He's been over six feet since he was like in ninth grade. And I brought him out to a protest and he threw an egg. And as a result, he was mobbed on by 50 plus MPD officers who wouldn't let me anywhere close to him. And it just, it made me absolutely sick to see the amount of over-policing that occurred for one kid. And not to mention that, my son was in ninth grade when he was first targeted by the police. He was in a verbal altercation at his former school. I guess another kid that was involved in the altercation had a knife in his backpack. The other kid admitted it belonged to him. Nobody was hurt, no hands were thrown, nothing. But PG County police charged my, my ninth grade son with first degree assault in adult court. And that charge is still pending. But I'm like, he's ninth grade, he's in ninth grade. Like he's a 14 year old kid that got into an altercation where nobody was hurt, nothing physical happened. And they're charging him as an adult in an adult court, which is very scary to me as a parent. It kind of really speaks to how insidious the grooming process of, of Black American children is here. You know, they, they force them to grow up too fast by stealing resources from the communities that they grow up in. They target them in their own schools, proven by the huge disparities in disciplinary mes measures taken against children of color versus their white counterparts. They make sure their communities are over-policed, which we all know over-policed communities have more crime, not because more crime occurs. They subject them to poverty in areas with little resources. They deny their mothers and sisters with proper medical care. They created a literal pipeline from their education system directly to prison where reform is said, but literally means nothing because their bodies are used as capital. You know, they, they earn money from them being there and release them back into the same communities with no resources to better themselves. They release them into a society that says, even though you paid for the crime, you paid for the crime that the state put you in the position to commit by stripping you of resources from a very young age. We're also gonna make it so you don't qualify for jobs or housing when you get out. They force reliance upon the government in an attempt to keep people under their boot. They deny proper medical care. Mental health resources are non-existent. You know, it's just this endless cycle of violent oppression, you know? And when they're done with all of that, the moments people get tired and the moment they say enough is enough, they paint them as terrorists.
are anarchists, dangerous to society. They use crime statistics that they both create with their over-policing and outright data fraud to convince the rest of society that Black and brown folks are violent, dangerous, more likely to insert crime here. You name it. It's really, to me, like the ultimate act of narcissism. They indoctrinate, ingrain, brainwash, abuse, oppress, then use it to racially profile, not to hire people with Black, you know, quote, Black names, end quote, not believe Black people in hospitals leaving black bodies in the streets for hours to desensitize America and then have the audacity to say things like, if you would just comply, if you would just follow the rules. And this starts from the time that they are children. Uh, sorry, I get caught up because it's there's so much to say about it, but there's also so little to say about it because it's so in your face and it's like, how dare you? Truly like any one of these things could be used to radicalize somebody if you truly think about it but it's like this this maze like all of it leads back to systemic racism and oppression and i just i really feel like if you aren't radicalized at this point like nothing will do the trick because it's all right there one of the last things I remember really seeing on Facebook was an article that I think it was Montgomery County Police um, in Maryland put out. And they said that they they did data-driven research and found implicit bias in a lot of their officers in regards to their traffic stops, in regards to the way that they proceed with their jobs. And in the comment section, there are still people denying it. It really makes you wonder, is there anything that we can say? Is there anything that they can see? Because they see these things with their own two eyes. The people who cause these problems have admitted that they have caused these problems and they still decide to, you know, back the blue. It's, it's just so in your face. And their responses are always, well, if you would just comply, if you would just listen, they murder people sleeping in their beds. They murder mentally ill people. They shoot at people who are helping autistic people in the middle of the street with their hands up. They shoot into vehicles with small children in them. They break their own laws to chase down citizens like Karan Hilton, resulting in his death and still don't get held accountable. It's like the law and order crowd is only law and order when it comes to a certain demographic. Your own police officers are breaking the laws for these things to occur and you still don't see it. I can't make it make sense. You know, I, I hate to be negative, but reality has shown us that I think that things are gonna get worse before they get better. We are literally dealing with fascists right now. And we're dealing with, I don't even know how else to say it, except like stupid fascists, not that any fascists are smart, but we're dealing with a very special type of stupid. The inauguration is tomorrow, and we still have people that are talking about four more years. So I really do think that them seeing this inauguration and them seeing this new administration take office is going to be extremely triggering to certain demographics. So I am concerned about what the future looks like, at least the very near future. But on a very positive note, you said the words that spark joy in my heart, which is mutual aid. We did a post today on our Instagram, just talking about how like the Black Panther Party started mutual aid with their free breakfast program. And it stole the dependency away from the states. And when the government and the state no longer has control, that's when you start to take your power back. 
right? We have so many unhoused people. We have so many people that are living below the poverty line despite working, you know, 40 hours a week. We have so many people in need and those people's immediate reaction is to go and petition the state and the government for help, right? I, I, I need an EBT card because I'm working but I can't afford to eat. Or I need housing because I'm working or maybe I'm not able to work but housing is, is impossible. It's, it's not affordable where I live and moving is even more expensive. So what do I do? Mutual aid is a bridge between those problems with people. Mutual aid gives the community a chance to help each other and to really love each other. You know, I can't tell you how many people will come by when we're serving food, like how much for a plate. And when we tell them it's free, like they just stand there for a minute, like what? <laughs> it's free come and listen to music with us come and come and get something to eat like if we have warm clothes that you need like feel free to take it and you can have it because it it takes away from people's dependency on the government and it takes away the government's power over the people which i will always advocate for <laughs> so mutual aid is it's an act of radical love within all members of the community and I think one of the most positive things that has sprung out of both this, this COVID crisis and this social justice uprising is the birth of so many mutual aid organizations that are just out here serving their purpose and serving the community and letting the community know, like, you don't have to depend on the people that keep their, their proverbial foot on your necks. You don't have to depend on the people who are violent towards you and who don't give a shit about your communities because you got people out here who do give a shit about you no matter who you are no matter what you look like no matter where you came from no matter you know what language you speak we're gonna feed you we're gonna do our best to take care of you like we're gonna help you with housing if we're able to like that's what we're here for and i think as things continue to go as they've been going that mutual aid is going to become a much bigger part of communities hopefully across the united states i don't really know what they look like outside of dc but i know dc like our mutual aid game is strong and that's not just with ffdc we've got a ton of works out here really really doing the work and i love to see it and i think that that's where the change is going to come from the change is not going to come from a change in administration at least not at this point the change is going to come from the people.